Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is week two of Empowered, our series on spiritual gifts. This week, Pastor Mike will be teaching from Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 13. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. You know, one of the words that fills the Bible in describing God's relationship with us is the word grace. We're saved by God's grace. We talk about God's grace a lot as a church because the Bible talks about it a lot. In fact, we've talked about it a whole bunch even in our study of the book of Ephesians thus far. You know, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, the word grace is mentioned nine times just in the first three chapters. And when we think of grace, a simple definition could be God's unmerited favor, the idea that God gives us not what we deserve, Uh, but he gives us something we don't deserve. It's not only that God doesn't give us the bad things that we deserve, but he actually gives us something good that we do not deserve. It's something that is freely given. We we haven't earned it in any way. It's, It's given as an expression of God's character. But even as we think about that, let me ask, what is God's grace? What does God give us as a gift of grace? When you think of grace, what do you think of? What does it mean to receive God's grace, to live in God's grace? You know, so I think for many of us, when we think of this whole concept of God's grace, we think oftentimes primarily in in sense that, you know, that God saved us from our sins, that we were sinners, and and by God's grace, He forgives us. He covers our, our sins through the death of Jesus on the cross, and as a result, He doesn't give us what we deserve. In a sense, we could say that we kind of think of it primarily in negative terms, meaning that by God's grace, God doesn't give us what we deserve. Uh, he removes our sins. He removes the stain of sin. He, he removes all that would keep us from God. This is an aspect of grace that clearly is taught in the Bible. We saw an, several weeks ago in Ephesians 2. This is very clearly taught, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace through faith saved from our sins. In fact, even as you think about that, probably one of the best-known songs of, you know, literally of of English-speaking language is a religious song about grace, amazing grace. And, And that song begins really talking about this concept of what we are saved from. Now, now, I'm not going to sing it for you. I'll read the lyrics. You'll be thankful that I did that. You know, but even in that, what does it say? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And it talks again about what we are saved from. We are saved from our sins. I remember even as a parent, you know, trying to teach this to my children when they were younger and, and trying to teach them the concept of grace. Sometimes they would get in trouble, and every once in a while, you know, after I'd confronted them and I pointed out what they had done, I said, well, today we're going to learn about God's grace. And grace is God giving us unmerited favor. What you've done deserves punishment, but because of grace, I'm going to give you uh, forgiveness. I'm not, not going to give you what you deserve. And, uh, and they like that. In the future, sometimes I would confront them and go to punish them. and say, what about grace? Let's go back to grace. Um, and I had one daughter who even tried to use my theology against me. Uh, you know, she would punish me and she said, Dad, you talk about grace all the time in church. Where's God's grace? You know, God's grace never runs out. And she would say, well, let's, that was a, a lesson on grace. Now let's talk about consequences, you know. And she, and she, but she would try to use it, and it's funny. Now, now what I wanted to even think about that is that while this aspect of God's grace is, is 
100% true. It's wonderfully true. It's only part of the story. See, in God's grace, God not only removes the stain of the negative, but he also, in a sense, places on us positive things. He gives us positive things, gifts and traits that we don't deserve. See, this positive aspect of God's grace has, has really been a huge emphasis of much of Ephesians. In fact, if we go back to the very beginning of Ephesians, you know, Paul begins the book this way. He starts out in verse, uh, you know, with a greeting, and then in verse 3, he right away says, blessed be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Not only what he's taken away, but he's given us all these blessings. And then we, he comes on, and really through the next three chapters, it's primarily just expounding what these spiritual blessings are. You see him starting this in the next verses. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us as adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. And just in case we wonder, you know, what He's talking about, how, what word does He use to describe these blessings? Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace, which with He has blessed us in the beloved. It's all grace. It's these gifts of grace. Now, let's jump forward to the passage that we're looking at this morning, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7. We read just a moment ago. What does it say? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This grace that is given, something that we do not deserve, but it's not just taking away the, the sin, but it's giving us something positive that we don't deserve. These positive aspects of God's grace. For those of us who trust in Jesus' death for the forgiveness of our sins, salvation isn't just what it saves us from, it's what also God saves us to and what he saves us for. See, it isn't just limited by the sense that he saves us from our sins, he saves us you know, from, you know, from the punishment we deserve, or that one day that we're going to get heaven, but there's also a sense that he gives us this grace in the here and now. In fact, even in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul talks about this, that God gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He not only removes our sin, but he gives us gifts that we don't naturally have. So the idea here is that God's grace is demonstrated both by the fact of what he, remo or by what he removes and by what he gives, both the negative of what he takes away, what we, you know, we, he doesn't give us what we you know, do deserve, but then he also gives us things that we do deserve. And amen. That is worth celebrating. And so now we've seen that, again, as used the word grace nine times in three chapters. Now he comes into you know, 4 7 and he begins to talk about grace, but he uses it in a little different way. In a sense, it's a little different. In a way, it's building on what he's been saying this every spiritual blessing. You know, that it's not only saving our sins, it's saving us to a higher purpose. It's not only that God gives us worth and value in eternity when we're in heaven, but we have worth and value in his kingdom in the here and now as well. See, I'm, I'm afraid that this is a truth that many Christians miss or struggle to really believe. You see, we often can embrace only part of God's grace. Well, we believe that God has forgiven us and he's saved us, that he's made us his child, that one day we will enjoy all the rights and privileges of what it means to be his child when we're in heaven, and that's our future salvation, but we believe that we really aren't that important, that we aren't that valuable to God in the here and now, that we aren't valuable to the church, to the world. 
You see, we may understand the negative things that God has taken away by grace, but we don't really understand or believe the positive identity and gifts, the the calling that He's given to us. When Paul speaks of God's grace, he says that it's given to each one of us. And it's really dealing with what we often refer to as the idea of spiritual gifts. He's teaching us that it's an expression of God's grace. God has given us each one an element of God's power, the Holy Spirit's power, so that through us, in a sense, we don't have superhuman power. We have literally supernatural power in us so that through us, we can now serve the world, we can serve the church and make a substantive impact. He's called us to do something. That literally, he's, it's not only that he saved us, in a sense, from sin, but he also saved us too, and he empowers us to do ministry, to do ministry within the church and the world. Again, now this is taught throughout the whole Bible. This emphasis, not only we save from, but we are saved too, and these things are closely tied together, and if we only get one, we've missed it. In fact, let's go back to what we read a few minutes ago, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We read it as this great passage talking about how we're saved from sin. Well, let's go back to that, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, that, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. That's wonderful. But the next verse, he continues on. Not only what we saved from, but what we're saved to. For we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. Each one of us created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Each one of us, if we are saved from our sins, we are also saved to, to a purpose. We are his workmanship, created, crafted, shaped for good works that God wants us to do, that he's prepared in advance. That's the full nature of God's grace. And until we understand that, you see, we're only getting a piece of it. Now, I know many people will say, but I don't really think that I have what it takes to be used of God in any significant way. You know, some would say, I don't have the maturity, I'm a new Christian, I really, or, or I don't have the gifts, I don't have any ability, or, or we look at our own failures. You know, God can't use me. We look at our own scars. And, and while we're thankful for God's forgiveness, and in the sense that we now... He's taken what he's taken away, we still don't feel like we have what it takes for God to use us in any significant manner. See, now, if that's what you're thinking, if that's you, I want to come back and say, okay, why does God use any of us? How does God use any of us? Does God use the gifted and the faithful because they're gifted and faithful? No, not at all. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Who does God use? How does God use us? God only uses the broken and the scarred. It's all by grace. It's all unmerited favor. It's not because of anything that we bring to the table. It's only because we bring our need and we rely upon what He gives us. He uses the scarred and, and the broken people. And in, fact, in fact, if we think that we have it all together and we're strong and we're capable, well, we really can't really be used of God. Because then we're trying to do it on our own strength and our own ability and our own power. And, and in that, we're not really relying on God. And like, look what Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He continues, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, the point here is that he's saying, no, no, God uses the broken people. And we need to realize that 
If we're here and we say, well, God can't use me, you know, we, we think that's humble. You know, no, I'm, I'm, I'm humble. I just can't be used to God. That's not a statement of humility. That's a statement of pride. Because what we're saying is that my limitations, my lack of ability, my failure, my scars, well, they're greater than God. And, and I'm looking at it, and the real big thing here is that, is that what we're really saying is that I believe in my weakness more than I believe in God's grace and power. And, and ultimately, when those things come together, my weakness is so great that it overwhelms God's grace and power. So God could use other people, but he really can't use me. My friends, no, we come and we bring our brokenness, and God says, okay, my grace is always greater than all your sin, all your weakness, all your... And, and I, I take glory in using the people that are not. He tells us that this is all a measure of grace. This idea of spiritual gifts, it's empowering grace. And even in this whole series, that's what it's all about, is that we're empowered, that he gives us, that we have literally God's power working in us. Now, you might be thinking, well, we read that passage a moment ago, and, and you're talking about spiritual gifts, and I, and I didn't see that mentioned here. Well, here's where we have to go back and, and go to the first rule of interpreting the Bible, which is we always need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So if he talks about this grace in, in Ephesians 4, 7, but grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of, of Christ's gift. What is that grace that he's talking about here? So we go to Scripture, and the first rule 1A, Scripture interprets Scripture, you go to context. So if you have your Bibles open, go to verses 11 and 12, and we see something in the context there that he's defining what this is. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So he's talking about the roles within the church. He has different people doing different things. And not only that, it's all about equipping people for ministry so that we all are doing ministry, and that way we build up the body of Christ. So it seems to be talking about spiritual gifts, but just if we're still unclear, well, then we go to Rule 1B, which is you go to more other passages, more clear passages, interpret the less clear. So let's go to another passage where he uses the same language, and then he clearly defines what it all means. Romans chapter 12. In verse 3, he says this, For by the by grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given us. So again, he's talking about this grace given to us in a way that is similar to Ephesians 4. And then we go to verse 4 and 5, and he talks about it being the body of Christ so that we're building it up. So it says, it just as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are, are one body in Christ, and individually the members of one another. So it's building on the same idea, and then he makes it explicit. This is what he's talking about. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, and then he goes on and he describes, he starts to list some of the gifts, some of the spiritual gifts. And so we say, okay, what are spiritual gifts? Some, might, some that might be a new term, and for some you've heard that before. And, and I'll tell you, we're going to get more into this, and we're going to come back to it in two weeks, but let me give you a simple definition to start. Spiritual gifts are differing abilities given by the Holy Spirit to each believer to meet needs in such a way that it helps build the ministry of the church and helps build a community within the church where people are growing into fullness in uh, the character of Christ. And so it's this idea that God has given us this, the Holy Spirit to empower us. Now, in Ephesians 4 and, and Romans 12, we see here in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, when he talks about spiritual gifts, they all talk about the body of Christ. 
This idea that, that it's all about building up the body of Christ in, in a sense that we're continuing the ministry of Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, you know, well, wait a second, I, continuing the ministry of Jesus. Well, Jesus did ministry. I don't have what Jesus had. I'm not God. And well, here's what we need to realize. Jesus had the fullness of God within himself. When he ascends to heaven, he says, okay, now I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. You're going to do greater things than not what I did in John 14. And here's what he's teaching us, that none of us have all that Jesus had. Jesus had the fullness. He had all the abilities to minister to people. He had, he had everything. Now, each one of us, we get a, a portion of that. Each one of us have the Holy Spirit, and with the Holy Spirit, we have literally the power of God, and in that power of God, he gives us a portion. He gives us a or a few gifts, a few things that we can do like Christ did. And no, no, none of us are like Christ. None of us have everything. All of us only have a bit. And what happens is when we work together, when we each one do our part, then literally all of us together are representing Jesus to the world. All of us together have all the power of Jesus expressing it to the world. But we have to do it together. Each one of us have something that is vital. Now, well, here's where we need to come back, though, and remember that this is all by God's, by God's grace. It's not because we're good or we deserve it or we're talented. It's not based on our accomplishments. It's based on love and grace. So when we talk about spiritual gifts, literally, the term there, spiritual gifts, has the idea of, of its, its grace-working gifts, the Greek word for grace that we see so often repeated here is the word charis. Um, now, you might notice that. Some people know that some churches talk about charismatic gifts, you know, and, and that literally is where we get that. First Corinthians uh, chapter 12, Romans, when it talks about spiritual gifts, that's the word it means or uses, charismatic. Now, that's simply a combination of two Greek words. Charis is grace. Mania is working. So think about this. We talk about something that is automatic, self-working. That's what that is. That's where the you know, you know, Greek word being used in English. So when we talk about charismatic, what it literally is is God gives us grace-working gifts that literally he says, okay, I'm going to give you the grace and I'm going to work it into your life so that it works in you and through you so that my grace is worked out into the world. And all of us have this grace-working gift that God has given us. All of us have something. It's, it's all grace-working, but it also all comes from grace in the sense that it's unmerited. It's not something that we do, that we earn. You know, we don't you know, deserve it. Why, again, why does God use any of us? It's not because we deserve it. It's because of grace. And so when we look at that, what is grace? Well, grace is unmerited favor. It's not something that God says, okay, well, here's a good person. You know, I'm going to use Pastor Mike because he deserves it, because he's talented. No, he looks at me and he says he's a mess, and he's willing to admit that he's a mess and get out of the way and say, okay, God, you do the amazing through me. If you could use somebody like me, then, you know, praise God. I mean, I, I mean literally, I mean, even when I was young, I remember talking to people, I feel God calling me to be a pastor, and everybody's like, well, that's really nice. You'll never do that. You know, that nobody saw that in me. Now, what is it? It's not that I have the ability. It's that some, somehow God has chosen to use me beyond what ability I would naturally have. See, the only reason that God uses us is because of what God does in us. That Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Look what he says. God, God told him, my grace is sufficient for you, uh, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul's conclusion, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. 
And so here's the idea that we need to realize. Now, the problem is that we can understand that theologically and intellectually, but as we've seen with so much of what Paul has been teaching in Ephesians, we really struggle to embrace it you know, at the depth of our being, to really believe it, to embrace this true source of our gift, to not only know it, but to accept it, to embrace it, and, and live as if it's true. Now, the reason we struggle with this is that in our experience, in dealing with other people, in dealing with life, anything that we receive is some degree based on our performance. It's, there's, they say there's no such thing as a free lunch, and, and it's true. <laughs> you know, we know that in our experience. Everything is a result of even we think about, boy, I'm going to be loving in marriage, and we learn to be self-sacrificial. And what happens is if, you know, if your spouse starts giving back, you know, and you're just giving 100%, you're like, no, I want something back. Why? Because there's a sense that all of us knows that there's some interaction, there's some, some give and take. I'll even illustrate it. I'm going to illustrate it by what I'm going to call the Santa Claus effect. And you might be thinking, where in the world is he going with this? You know, it's May and Mother's Day. It's not Christmas. And, well, well, here's my point. When we, as a culture, if we could envision and dream of and think of and imagine the most kind and gracious gift giver we could possibly think of, we develop this picture of this kindly old man whose whole existence was to make and give gifts. That's the whole reason that Santa exists. Now, on the one hand, we think of this, and he's kind and gracious in that he gives gifts to everyone, but even as he prepares these gifts, does he take into account each person's actions? Do you have to be good to get the gifts, or if you're bad, do you lose the gifts and instead get a lump of coal? Think about that. You know, I don't know if this is going to play, if we can play this song. Even listen to the song, Santa Claus, is it, did we get that to play? Or? Nope, Okay. Santa Claus, I'm not going to sing it for you, but okay, here's what you have. What is it? Again, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, we all know this, right? He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's, he's got this list, and what does it say? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. You better be good, because if not... You're going to miss the, you know, the best gift giver, the most gracious person we could imagine. Still, there's some element of performance. You know, he's watching you. He's making this list. And, and the, the gifts that you give will be dependent on some degree on how good you are. Now, now some of us are afraid that if Santa is really all-knowing, as he claimed to be, when he looks at the list of good or bad and he looks at our list, his reaction is something like this. You know, it's like, ah, you know, it's like, forget it, we're in trouble. And... Um, Others would hope, you know, well, you know, I'm hoping that there's not just a naughty or nice list. You know, I hope that he adds a third category that you've got the misunderstood. You know, just kind of like, you know, I, I feel a little bit more safe there. And now you're saying, what in the world does this all have to do with the church and with the ministry and Ephesians? Again, here's the idea. If Santa is our ideal of a generous gift giver. And if the story of Santa Claus is the best we could think about it, it reveals something about about ourselves, about what we believe. Specifically, when it comes to giving gifts, even the most gracious person we could imagine, Santa Claus, his gifts are in some way dependent upon our actions or what we deserve. So what happens, if that's all we can imagine, then we come to God, and even though God says it's all by grace, no, deep down we know that, no, he's keeping a list. And because he knows he does know whether we're you know, awake or sleeping. He knows whether we've been bad or good. And 
and he knows we've all been kind of naughty. And, and since he knows all and he sees our failures, he can sees that we continue to struggle with certain sins, then we know we really don't deserve God's gifts. But here's what we need to realize. The fact is that God is far greater than Santa Claus. Our imagination limits that. We can't let our imagination define who God is or the nature of his grace towards us. No, he it gives out a grace, not merit at all. See, look at what it says if, if, in verses 8 through 10. Therefore, it's, if you have your Bible, Ephesians 4, verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led host of, uh, a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above heavens that he might fill, fulfill all things. Now, the picture here is not of Santa, but it's of a, a gifts of a victorious king. And uh, now you might look at that and you say, what is he talking about? You know, he led this cape, you know, captives and he descended and ascended and, and that's confusing. And you're like, what's it mean? I'm not sure, so let's just go to the next verse. And I'd like to do that, but no, no, we're going to look at this. What does it mean? Uh, there are some that will take this to mean, well, it's talking about Jesus after his death, went to hell for three days. And well, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. Mainly, you look at the Gospels and Jesus said, at this death, it is finished. So, so we're trying to figure out this, and there's a lot of confusion about this. But the key is that when he's in verse 8, he's quoting another verse. That's why it's set off in your Bibles that way. He's quoting Psalm 68, 18. And here is, we go back to you have to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. We have to go to Psalm 68, 18, see the context, and then it, we understand it. Then it will all come together. Now, both of them are talking about this idea that in ancient times you would have kings that would uh, go to war. You would have an enemy that would be out of the gate. The enemy would be threatening to come in and conquer and take everyone captive. The enemy could destroy your life. And so what happened is that the king would go out and fight the battle, and if he won the battle, you know, he would come back and there would be a great parade and people would welcome him and throw gifts to him as a celebration, as a thank you to him and to his army for what they had done. And then he would ascend onto the throne, and then he would rule from the throne. Now, in Psalm 68, which as Paul is quoting here, he's referring to Psalm 68 as a, is taking that picture and he's talking about a specific incidence. Specifically, it's all referring back to David coming into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant. And he's basically saying, okay, here he's ascending to heaven, he's going into, or into, into Jerusalem, he's going to Mount Zion where the, the Holy of Holies were, was. And the picture is this. It's a celebration of the ultimate victory of God because it goes all the way back to, uh, to, to the Exodus. The people of Israel were in, you know, were, in, were in Egypt, they were enslaved, and God won the great victory. And finally, in that great victory, now God's presence being illustrated by the Ark of the Covenant is now being taken up into Jerusalem where he's put on the throne, where he now rules in a sense. And it's this picture of this great victorious celebration of a victorious king. He's, de you know, he's defeated the enemy of slavery. He's brought them out of captivity. Now, in quoting this, Paul is saying, that's great. But what you need to realize is that, is that God wasn't done then. That, that he not only came and did that, but then he came back and he did, took on even a greater enemy. It wasn't about Egypt and that slavery. It was ultimately we were slaves to sin. And so what did he do? He came back and he literally de uh, descended onto the earth that God who was on the throne came to earth and took on humanity, came, descended, and then after he descended and accomplished it, he then ascended onto heaven. 
And not only that, what, what did he do when he ascended and descended? He defeated the final enemy. He defeated sin and death so that we could now, he could now dwell with us. It's not a box that dwells in the Holy of Holies. How does God dwell within us now? It's in us. We are the temple. He dwells within us. This is far more intimate, far greater than anything he could imagine. And that's the picture. What a powerful, what a beautiful picture of what God accomplished. But even in that, he then takes this and he quotes the verse and he changes a word. Psalm 68:18. let me put that up here. Here's what it said. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts amongst men, even amongst the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, here's what I want you to see. He changes one word there. Here's what he says. Psalm 68 is in receiving gifts amongst men. In Ephesians 4, he changes that. He gave gifts to men. Now, here's what he's saying. Is the victory was so great that beforehand, the king would come in with his army and the people would throw out gifts and say thank you and, and appreciation. And the victory of Jesus was so great that there was nothing we could give him. So that he comes out and he says, okay, not only am I bringing my presence with you, but I'm not going to distribute gifts of my victory. I'm going to give you the spoils of the war. I'm not going to receive from you. I'm going to give to you. And so, so that what's happening? So that the reality of my reign may be more real. And here's this incredible idea. These gifts aren't just in heaven. They're, they're things that are bestowed upon us in the here and now so that he's dwelling with us now. It's not just one day that we're in heaven. He's dwelling with us now, and he's given us these gifts, these spiritual gifts that he wants to work in us and through us so that we can serve him. And again, why does he use us? It's not because of anything that we've done. It's not because of our capability. It's because of the victory that God won at the cross. And if any of us thinks, well, God can't use me, well, what we're saying is, well, no, the victory at the cross really wasn't that great. He really didn't have that kind of spoils. It really didn't accomplish the ultimate victory for me. My friends, if we really understand grace, if we understand God, if we understand all that was accomplished, this is to each one of us. But Paul, even here, you know, anticipates an objection, and we're just going to touch on this and really dig into it next week. And this objection is about the distinction and connection between these various gifts. The objection that he anticipates is, well, you might have gifts, and, but look at you know, Pastor Mike, you're the pastor, and you, know, you have big gifts, and, and I'm not so much. You know, it's, there are other people that are you know, the staff and the leaders, and, and they're gifted. I don't really have that much. You know, that's a few. No, what does he say? You know, we're looking at it saying, I was in the back of the parade. He didn't, you know, I think about being at some of the, you know, games where they're, you know, throwing t-shirts out. You know, I'm on the top deck. Nothing gets up there. Now, here's what he's saying, that all of us are given gifts. Now, look at what he says in verse 11 and 12. He gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. Those are a few of the gifts that he's given. Now, what is unique about those gifts? Those gifts, shepherds and teachers, pastors and teachers, specifically, this is me. We're going to talk about this more next week. My role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building of the body. Who does the work of ministry? The saints. Who's that? You. That all of us are called to do the work of ministry. The pastor's job is to equip the saints for the building of the body until we all obtain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the full stature of Christ. How do we get to the full measure of the stature of Christ? When we're all serving. When I'm equipping and we're all serving and we're all going here. And what it's saying, yes, he's given pastors and teachers, but the difference between pastors and teachers is not in degree 
but only type. Meaning, what's unique about me is not that I have more of the Holy Spirit, that God has given me more power, that I can be more useful than any of you here. No. I have a different type of ministry. And specifically, the different, the different type is that pastors primarily, our job is to equip other people for frontline ministry. It's not more important. It's not more valuable. It's not more powerful. It's just different in that it's all focused on equipping then in a sense, the pastor's role is supportive. It's back lines. And when we talk about, okay, well, who's doing on the front lines? Who's really on the front lines? What it's saying is that's not the pastor. The pastor is back line. His job is primarily supportive. And primarily, what does a pastor do? What is spiritual leadership? What is the staff? Are we the most important people? No. Because our job is specifically to equip others to do the work of the ministry for the church, of the church that you are the ministers of the church, um, that you are the ones that are on the front line. And if you look at it and you say, okay, what is the, you know, if you think in terms of, of a battle, you know, the people that are most important are on the front line, the people that are out, out fighting, the, you know, fighting the battles. And now is it important for the people that are behind the lines and they're feeding and providing? And yes, they're important. That's my job. And we look at it, my job is to support you because you're at the front lines of ministry. Just even practically from evangelism, the fact is you have opportunity, you have way more opportunity to reach people to Christ than I do, simply for the simple reason that, you know, in your workplace, you have a lot of unbelievers that you have a chance to share in your schools or wherever you're at. My workplace, I hope that everybody that works with me are Christians. <laughs> you know, if not, then we've got other problems. You know, I don't have the same opportunities. We all, each one of us are representatives of Christ. Each one of us, in a sense, are empowered for ministry. Each one of us are called to minister to each other, love each other. We're going to see some of what that means. If you say, well, I don't even know what these spiritual gifts are. Again, we're going to really get into this in two weeks. If you really even want to know what your spiritual gifts are, uh, two weeks from now, Sunday night on the 23rd, we're going to even be coming back and, and saying, come back and we'll do a spiritual gifts test and we'll go even deeper in this and help you figure out what that is and, and where God maybe is called you, you know, calling you and, and where, where does he want to use you. But the important thing is that each one of us are vital. God is at work. God is at work through the body of Christ. Jesus is, is still at work. His power is still at work. But it's at work specifically through his body, which is his people, which is his family, which is each one of us. And that means each one of us being a part, each one of us doing a part. And we might feel like we don't have what it takes and just come and bring your willingness, bring your brokenness. In fact, what you're going to find is that if you bring your brokenness, oftentimes the very brokenness that you bring, the scars that you bring, the deepest hurts that you bring are the things that God's going to say, okay, let me use that, let me redeem that, let me use that to be able to minister to other people who are struggling with the same thing. But my friends, the question is, you really understand God's grace? First of all, have you ever accepted that God's, God's grace, that he accepted his gift of forgiveness, and, and for, by grace you're saved through faith, not by what I do, not by my goodness, but God, I agree with you that I need that salvation. I ask you to forgive me through my faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. And then for those of us who have, to realize it's not only what God has taken away, the sins and the stain, but it's also what he's given you, what he's empowered you to do. And he now calls us to understand that and to live into that grace, to minister to each other, and in that to find the incredible blessings that come with living into that grace. Let me close in prayer, and then let me remind you that um, 
that, you know, we, for all women, we have a gift after, afterwards that it's the uh, Connect Center, please. It's a Mother's Day gift. We want to encourage you. But especially for women with this day on Mother's Day, where I know it can be kind of this bittersweet day. Um, as you look at it, you think about just things that can make Mother's Day hard. We have flowers for you. Uh, please come up and pick up, you know, again, as many flowers as that your, your story, um, you know, God is telling you that you need that encouragement. And, uh, and I hope that you do so. I hope that even today we have a chance to minister to and encourage each other. And that is it for this week's message. If you'd like to get in touch or find a way to serve in our community, send us a text to 330-644-6121. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There you can send in a prayer request. We would love to be praying for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.